Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Though I am free, and not at anyone's beck and call, I let go of my personal freedoms, lifestyle, and preferences to win as many as possible. To those from a particular culture, I try to gain their acceptance by showing active interest and respect for their ways. To those with a religious background, I live respecting their boundaries, avoiding those things that I know I am free to do, to eat, to wear as a Christian, but which may cause unnecessary offence though I make this choice willingly and am not bound as they are. When I am with people who live by more secular values, I drop unnecessary religious language and practices that accentuate our differences and live in a way they understand as being distinct without being distant. In other words, I want to live in their world without compromising my obedience to Christ. I want them to see that Jesus is not just for good religious people. When I associate with the powerless, marginalized, or ignored, I am careful not to exploit any power or influence I may have over them even in friendship. Instead, I empower them, making it a relationship of equals before God. In every circumstance, I do what it takes, letting go of my preferences, freedoms, and choices, whatever is necessary, so that others may see and hear Christ in a language and form they understand. I do this for their sake, that they may be saved. I do this for the Lord's sake, that he may be honored. And I do this for my sake, that I may be blessed. Uh, Please make sure you have uh, 1 Corinthians 9 uh, in front of you, page 1151 in the Church Bibles, and I will pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom that we do have in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the many freedoms that we as believers in the West have 
uh, to meet and to gather and to listen to your word, to proclaim your word. Uh, And we pray this morning that as we sit under that word, that we would learn from it, that we would hear your voice, and that we would be changed by what we hear, so that we're better able to express the good news of Jesus to those around us. So please, by your spirit, come and be our helper, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A poem entitled, How to Hide Jesus. There are people after Jesus. They've seen the signs. Quick, let's hide him. Let's think carpenter, fisherman's friend, disturber of religious comfort. Let's award him a degree in theology, a purple cassock, and a position of respect. They'll never think of looking there. Let's think, his dialect may betray him, his tongue is of the masses, so let's teach him Latin and 17th century English. They'll never think of listening in. Let's think humble, man of sorrows, nowhere to lay his head. We'll build a house for him, somewhere away from the poor. We'll fill it with brass and silence. It's sure to throw them off. There are people after Jesus. Quick, let's hide him. That poem by Steve Turner was written in the 1970s, and it would be very easy to say that we've moved on from there. Our pastor, Dan, currently has no theological degree. He's got a diploma. He wouldn't be seen dead in a purple robe. And he speaks 21st century English, not 17th. And our gatherings here at Maudlin Road, they're pretty informal. We sing contemporary songs as well as the older ones. We're not hiding Jesus, are we? Well, perhaps to answer that question, we would need to ask the not-yet-Christian people who come to our church sometimes. To those in our community that we rub shoulders with day by day, do they see Jesus in us? Is his message of truth and freedom made clear? in our communications? I'm sure there's room for improvement, but in general, I think Morden Road does a reasonable job. At least we do so when it comes to people like us, culturally like us. But what about those who are different, those who come from other cultures? Turner's poem speaks of hiding Jesus in 17th century religious culture. Well, we don't do that. But what we fail to grasp is that the gospel is equally hidden in our contemporary British expressions of Christian faith. That is not the, the background that the other person comes from. So the Apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was very aware that of the danger that the good news of Jesus might be hidden in Jewish culture. And in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, he gives us some clues about how he avoided that danger and, by extension, how we can avoid the danger of hiding Jesus in our own culture, whatever that might be. So firstly, Christian truth requires us to differentiate what is the gospel from what is culture. But first of all, what is culture? Well, there are lots of definitions. I'm not going to go into that this morning. But culture includes 
Some of those obvious external things, whether it's food, clothing, architecture, music, art. It includes history and literature. An Iranian student I met in Oxford a couple of years ago was insistent that if I was to understand him, I needed to read Iranian poets and literature. It includes language. It includes the ways we communicate, both verbal and body language. It includes social structures, family and society, the different ways in which we relate. It includes learning methods. One of the biggest problems many Asian students find when they come to the West is plagiarism. Because for most of them, to repeat verbatim what their teachers say is commendable, a mark of respect. Cultures, all of these things, and much more. But two very important things we need to understand about culture. Firstly, it's learnt. It's not inherited through our genes. In other words, it's not the same as race. Some years ago, we had a Norwegian lodger. Uh, While Bjorn was with us, his girlfriend came to visit from Norway. And when she arrived, we had a bit of a shock. Standing at our door was a petite, Asian-looking woman. Uh, Not typically Norwegian. But Olag, her name's Norwegian, she was genuinely Norwegian. She spoke Norwegian as a native. She related culturally as a Norwegian. But she was Asian by birth. Korean parents had given her up for adoption. And apart from the first two weeks of her life, she'd lived the whole of her 20-something years in Norway, learning culture in the environment of a Norwegian home. There was nothing Korean about her at all, except her looks. So culture is learnt. Secondly, all of us, without exception, treat our own culture as though it were the centre of the universe. It takes precedence over everyone else's. It's better than everyone else's. And this attitude can express itself in quite subtle, but nevertheless deep-seated attitudes. Consider the following quotation. Forgive my accent, especially the French among us. The French call it a couteau. The Germans call it a messer. But we call it a knife, which is, after all, what it really is. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law but am under Christ's law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. The basic principle Paul sets out for us here is that Christians should adapt. The question is, what should I adapt? There's an apparent contradiction in these verses that gives us a clue. In verse 20, Paul speaks about being not under the law. And in verse 21, he says, I'm not free from God's law. How can both be true at the same time? Well, I think the answer is that he uses law in two different ways. 
In verse 20, he's referring to the law as the ceremonial laws, like circumcision, the food laws, and the sacrificial system. These have been fulfilled in Christ. They're no longer required for the Christian. Our salvation does not depend on them. They remain part of Jewish culture. And so in verse 20, Paul will say to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. So they remain part of Jewish culture, but they're not binding on the Christian. Second way Paul uses the law is to describe the law of Christ. Verse 21, he speaks of being under Christ's law. The Christian is now a slave of Christ, living under his rule. We remain subject to his teaching in all things. So you wouldn't expect to hear the apostle saying, to the adulterer I became an adulterer, or to the thief I became a thief. Of course not. Paul's flexibility is with reference to culture and not the gospel. The law which forms the culture of the Jews, he's willing to put on or to put off, depending on who he's with. The law which is Christ's law, which is the gospel, he will not put off. He's permanently committed to it. Verse 19, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. With regard to culture, Paul will flex as far as he knows how. With regard to the gospel, he will not flex at all. As the Australian Philip Jensen once said, we must demonstrate our commitment to the unchanging truths of the gospel by our willingness to change anything and everything else. This is really very important principle. Because what happens if we don't distinguish between what the gospel is and what culture is? Well, we'll be in danger of either hiding the gospel, like Steve Turner's poem, or distorting it. Let me give you an illustration. A few years back, I visited a former international student in his home in India. Vijay was still a Hindu, but he thought I might like to see a church in his country. So I agreed to his suggestion and off we went uh, by train to the next town. A wonderful train journey, just like you see on the movies. People hanging out of the windows, animals everywhere. It was great for an hour. When we arrived at our destination, I knew immediately where the church was. A large Victorian spire towered above all the other buildings. We walked the half mile to the church which looked like it had been transported from an English street corner. We entered the building and we were faced with rows of wooden pews, just like we'd find in the older church buildings in our country. I took a look at the hymn book, Hymns Ancient and Modern, in English. What does that say to the hundreds and thousands of Hindus living in the villages across the plains of North India? But it says if you want to be a Christian, you have to be English. You have to live like the English. You have to speak English. You have to build buildings like the English. Is that true? Of course not. But that's the message that's being sent. So a failure to work out what is culture and what is gospel actually sends a false message, a heretical message. We must get this right. In order to demonstrate that the gospel is for everybody, 
we must, as best we can, strip the gospel of our own cultural clothing and dress it in the clothes of the culture that we want to reach. Anna Vines puts it like this. We're called to take everything that we think is right and normal from our own culture, our background, our understanding, even of the Bible, and lay it down. We have to be like a blank canvas for God. Then with wisdom and prayer, we allow God to paint our canvas so that every culture we come across can see their culture in us as well as God's love for us and his spirit in us. If we fail to do that, what we do communicate is that the gospel is an accoutrement of my culture, not something of universal relevance. And that would be heresy, would it not? We must not attempt to reshape the gospel for that culture, but we can and we must reshape ourselves, our behavior, our patterns of communication, our applications of the gospel to different cultures. As Paul says in verse 22, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. (coughs) Anna in Sierra Leone has learned Creo as well as greetings in three different tribal languages. She's taken those on in order to show that she's embraced their culture, that she values it. She always tries to dress modestly, as Sierra Leone's predominantly Muslim, so she makes sure her knees and her shoulders are covered so as not to cause offence. And Anna's conscious of the fact that in Sierra Leone, relationships are seen as much more important than achieving tasks. And so she says, every time I come to walk up my street... I have to make a conscious effort to greet and talk to everyone I see, which is often not what I want to do after a tiring day at work, but it's important to show people that I care for them and don't see myself as above them. Andrew Sadler has spoken about his experience of finding the directness of Western speech uh, something which others find offensive. He says, I know that in many cultures, straight talking just doesn't work. It requires endless patience to keep going around the houses until eventually you get where you want to be. Being direct will alienate people. They don't appreciate it. Both Anna and Andrew have worked out that our Western cultural values are not necessarily gospel values. They've differentiated what is gospel from what is culture. But what about here in Oxford? These verses don't simply apply to pioneer missionaries, whether of the 1st or 21st centuries. They apply to us all. And first and foremost, they apply to our attitudes. How do we think about the cultures of other people groups, of Asians, of Chinese, of Poles, of other Eastern Europeans, or simply those who are ethnically English but culturally different from us? If we're to live as disciples of Jesus in this global village, then we too must learn to embrace different cultures for the sake of the gospel. And Paul's flexibility over cultural issues in this chapter is precisely because of his passion to see people saved from judgment. He knows that Christ died for all peoples, tribes, languages and nations, and he desires above all else that some of them might be saved. And if we don't share his passion to pass on the gospel to those who are different, then let's ask God to give us such a passion. 
because it would be hard in this city not to know or to come across people of different, cult- of different cultures and languages. 22% of the population of the city are from a minority ethnic group. 16% have a mother tongue that's not English. That's about 60 different mother tongues in the schools of Oxford. God's brought them here to Oxford, to East Oxford, for the purpose that we might be witnesses to them of God's goodness and salvation. So let's ask God to give us a deep love for them, a love that will drive us to learn some of their language, some greetings, to eat their food, to listen to their stories, a love that will not expect them to become like us before they embrace Christ. They can be Christians and remain culturally Indian or Algerian or Chinese. So Christian truth requires we separate what is the gospel from what is culture. And secondly, Christian love requires us not to stand on our rights. Verse 19 again, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. If the first point was about what to adapt, the second is about how to adapt, or in what spirit should we adapt. And the context is this whole section in 1 Corinthians, from chapter 8, verse 1, through to 11, verse 1, where there are two main issues. The first is to eat or not to eat, that is, meat that's been offered to idols, and secondly, to be paid or not to be paid for doing Christian ministry, Paul's right to receive payment for what he was doing. Firstly, meat offered to idols. In Corinth, much of the meat that was sold in the markets had been involved in animal sacrifice in one of the pagan temples. And young Christians who'd been saved out of that background didn't want anything to do with this meat. It was too closely connected with their former way of life and there was a fear of being drawn back into that world that they'd left behind. Longer-standing Corinthian Christians were arguing that there was no problem for them to eat this meat. They were free to eat what they liked. And basically, Paul says, that's right. The idols are nothing. It is, it's okay. But that's not the point. Our freedoms are not important because the gospel's always focused on the other person. Our model is Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give himself as a ransom for many. His was a cross-centered ministry, giving up his rights and his freedoms for the sake of others. See what he writes at the end of chapter 8, starting at verse 9. He says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, genuine rights, be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall, to eat or not to eat. Secondly, to be paid or not to be paid. That's the question of the first half of chapter 9. Here we discover a lesson about biblically guided cultural adaptation. 
Because gospel ministry sometimes means not adapting to the culture. Corinthian culture defined the value of their particular philosophical teacher by the amount that they paid them. And if Paul just adapted to the culture in some unprincipled way, he would have taken their money. But no, Paul wants them to know that the gospel comes free of charge. So on this occasion, uh, the gospel requires him not to adapt. And in verses 19 to 23 of chapter 9, Paul appears to take up a third position from which he can become a Jew or become a Gentile. He's managed to separate in his own mind what were Christian biblical principles which he could not compromise and everything else which he could. He would then adapt his culture accordingly, his guiding principle for adaptation being this. Will it help people to be saved, to understand the gospel, in which case he'll adapt? If it won't help them, or it will cause them confusion, then he won't adapt. Paul's own preferences always came second. He understood that Christian love requires us not to stand on our rights. Amy Ski gives a very good illustration of this. She writes, because of my ultimate freedom, I love that, because of my ultimate freedom, I'm able to sacrifice some of my daily freedoms in order that I can identify with people where they are, ensuring that my behavior does not create a barrier to the gospel. So, for example, I give up my freedom to have male friends round to my house. Because even though there's nothing immoral about it, if I did have them to my house, people would not think I was an honorable woman, and this would hinder my witness. It's not to say that we should always be concerned about how people perceive us, but as much as possible we should be looking to ensure that the only offense is the cross, not our behavior even if it's only perceived as offensive behavior in my culture, in one culture. So you see, Amy's not standing on her rights. She's letting them go for the sake of the gospel. But as we've said, there will be times when the gospel demands that we don't adapt to the culture. And she continues with this same theme of not having men in her home. Of course, this can create conflict, she writes. So for example, my neighbor who lived upstairs, is a girl from Iran who often had male friends round to her house. I didn't do this, but my friendship with her did affect my reputation in the community. This is where we have to be willing to identify with people who don't have a good reputation, remembering that Jesus identified with them, uh, saying it was not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Anna's work in Sierra Leone puts her in a similar situation. She writes, in my work, I go to disabled children's houses to give exercises, advice, equipment, love, prayer, and support to the child and the families. Disabled children are considered to be devils in this culture, so the families are encouraged by their communities to return them to the devil through a ceremony in the bush, and the child is left to die there. These families need a lot of encouragement to look after their child in a world where there's no support for disabilities from the government. I spend my days on the ground playing and doing exercises with children, sometimes in slums or very dirty places, to show the families the love of Jesus and how Jesus cares for these children. 
We speak openly about Jesus and pray for the child at the end of every visit. It's not easy, but I need to show these families that the children are worth investing in and worth loving, despite all the community pressure and rejection. In this case, a refusal to adapt to the culture is what's best for the gospel. But for Anna and any whom she persuades to work with her, it's costly. Christian love requires us not to do what's easiest, cheapest, or most comfortable for us, but what's best for the gospel. It requires us not to stand on our rights, not to expect things to be done in a way that makes us feel comfortable, The gospel and other people's needs to embrace it come first. So wherever we are in the world, if we want to extend the gospel among people of different cultures, we'll have to get used to all kinds of practices being done differently. Different ways of engaging socially, visiting instead of inviting, a greater flexibility and generosity with our time, eating different food and coping with different mealtable etiquette. So who are the people in our neighbourhood or workplace who are culturally different from us? How are we going to show them the reality of Christ and the truth of the gospel? Whether it's an international student from China or Chad, a neighbour from Poland or Pakistan, a work colleague from Spain or Singapore, it's going to require a level of cultural flexibility. And if believers from other cultures find their way into this fellowship, some of that flexibility may need to be applied to the way in which we do church. Dan commented last week that as a church, we're not bad at bridging cultural, even theological differences. That's one of the reasons I love being at Magdalen Road. We unite around what's important, the gospel, and we're flexible about what's secondary. But in this multicultural community that's East Oxford, we may need to learn to flex just a little bit more. We may need to adapt to using different languages. Thank you, Philippa, for praying in Portuguese. We may need to use different music, different teaching styles. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who've received his love, we're the ones who can dare to be different. Our security is in him. Our ultimate freedom is in him. So we should be free to adapt or not to adapt, even when it's costly. The self-sacrifice of the cross is to be our own model in cross-cultural ministry. So Christian truth requires us to differentiate the gospel from culture. Christian love requires us not to stand on our rights. And then thirdly, and briefly, Christian blessings require us to engage in cross-cultural ministry. Verse 19 again, Though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many possible as possible. Then verse 22, To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul's motivated by this Great desire to see people saved. But he goes further in verse 23. He says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. After everything that's gone before, you'd expect him to say, so that they might share in its blessings. But now he says, so that I might share in its blessings. We will 
be benefit from doing this. We will be blessed by doing it. And just three ways, uh, very briefly, uh, that we are blessed. Firstly, the joy of seeing others come to trust Jesus. C.T. Studd, the great 19th century aristocrat and England cricketer, who basically gave up everything to go and serve God in China, but he wrote this. He said, I've tasted almost all the pleasures that this world can give, but those pleasures were as nothing compared to the joy that the leading of that one soul uh, to the Lord gave me. I know what that's like. It is the most wonderful thing in the world when we see a friend or a neighbor come to know the Lord Jesus. And although I've not been personally involved in her coming to faith at the moment, I am personally filled with joy every time I see a Vietnamese student at Brooks who's trusted Christ. She's little by little being transformed. And every time I see her, I I marvel and I'm filled with joy at seeing God at work in her life. It is a huge blessing. Secondly, the wonder of becoming like Jesus. (coughs) Again, last week, Dan took us through the first part of Philippians 2, where we see the Lord Jesus embracing the greatest of all cultural divides, coming from heaven to earth, and then putting himself out to the ultimate degree by dying on the cross for us. The more we put ourselves out for the sake of bringing others to Christ, the more we become like him. And then thirdly, the blessing of knowing Jesus better. Could you quickly turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3? Ephesians page 1175 in the church Bibles. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17b. Before I read it, the context of these verses is Paul's description in chapters 2 and 3 of how the cross of Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and by extension between all cultures. The gospel unites us, but it doesn't make us all the same. And so he says in verse 17, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You see that? It's only together with all the Lord's holy peoples of different cultures and backgrounds that we will fully know the love of Christ. If we're to know Jesus in all his fullness, we need each other. And rather than feeling threatened by them, we need the different cultural perspectives that Asian and Arab and African believers can bring us. Isn't that a great incentive to reach the nations and the different cultures with the gospel and then to welcome them into our fellowship that we might know Jesus better? Because without them, we won't. So whether God calls you overseas, which he may, or calls you to remain here, Paul's message is the same. If we're to enjoy the blessings of the gospel, if we're to pass it on to others wherever God places us, we will always need to put ourselves out for the sake of the gospel. It's not an option for a Christian to cling on to his or her own culture. We must adapt ourselves, our way of life, our listening to scripture, and our communications. According to the Apostle, such adaptation is a gospel imperative. 
It stops Jesus being hidden and it leads to gospel blessings for us all. I'll close with the the different version of 1 Corinthians 9 that Pat read uh, to us, just a couple of verses. Though I'm free and not at anyone's beck and call, I let go of my personal freedoms, lifestyle and preferences to win as many as possible. In every circumstance, I do what it takes, letting go of my preferences, freedoms and choices, whatever's necessary, so that others may see and hear Christ in a language and form they understand. I do this for their sake, that they may be saved. For Christ's sake, that he may be honoured. And for my sake, that I may be blessed. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did indeed cross the greatest of all cultural barriers to become a human being like us, even a servant of human beings, ultimately to give up your life on the cross for us, that we might be saved. We pray that you'd fill us with your spirit, that we might be willing to give up our personal freedoms and adapt to the way of life of others the communications of others, to rethink even how we understand Scripture so that we might bring the good news of Jesus uh, to all nations, that they may be saved and that we may be blessed. Amen.